From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Lauren Carter, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're talking about plants. Arctic plants, rare plants, indigenous plants. This episode is biodiversity friendly. You'll hear an eco-babble on how Arctic plants are adapting to a warmer climate. We've got a research spotlight story on protecting rare plants from climate change and a story about how plant ID cards are engaging people in learning about indigenous plants in the Pacific Northwest coastal region. That's all coming up on Terra Informa. But first, let's go to the environmental news headlines. Federal scientists are perplexed by the wash-up of thousands of dead sea creatures in Nova Scotia. Lobsters, starfish, crabs, herring, and other species have washed ashore along the Bay of Fundy. The problem started in late November, with another huge wash-up in December. Scientists have tested the fish and found no evidence of disease, parasites, toxins, or physical injury. Scientists have also tested water quality, and the results have been normal. It's possible that storm runoff has caused the spike in fish mortality, according to marine ecologist Kent Smedball in an interview with CTV Atlantic. Storms cause turbulence and rain runoff dilutes the water salinity close to shore. Some residents have been out to the beaches collecting the fish, but the Canadian Food Inspection Agency warns residents not to eat the fish. Scientists are still conducting tests for pesticides and they're doing more water quality tests. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans has said that the problem does not appear to be ongoing at this time and they are monitoring the area. A nuclear power company in Ontario is defending its proposal to bury nuclear waste near the Great Lakes. The proposed site is less than one mile from Lake Huron and it is near Kincardine, Ontario. Kincardine is home to the world's largest nuclear power complex. The site near Lake Huron would store the radioactive waste in a limestone formation that has been stable for millions of years. Ontario Power Generation is the company, and they recently submitted a report to the Federal Environment Minister defending the proposal. The report considers two alternative sites for nuclear waste storage, but found that the alternatives would be costlier and posed a greater risk to the environment. An alternative site would also increase greenhouse gas emissions because the waste would be transported by truck for a longer distance. The federal government has delayed their ruling twice and expects to make a decision in the fall of 2017. So far, the year 2017 has brought intense smog to Beijing and other cities across China. Some cities had air pollution levels many times higher than the safe levels designated by the World Health Organization. Hundreds of flights were delayed and highways had to be closed. 25 cities in China ordered the temporary closure of factories, schools, and construction sites. Government inspectors found many factories violating the temporary ban on operation. More than 500 factories and construction companies were found to be in violation, and 10,000 vehicles had also violated the temporary ban on heavy traffic. China's air pollution is largely attributed to coal and factory production, as well as many old and efficient cars on the roads. The Max Planck Institute in Germany estimates that smog has led to premature deaths for 1.4 million people per year in China. Those were just some of this week's headlines. Now, you'll hear an eco-babble curated by Julianne Hayes on how Arctic plants are adapting to a warmer tundra.
Frigid, vast, and far from most human habitation, the Arctic tundra is a dynamic ecosystem full of mysteries waiting to be uncovered. It lies beyond the tree line in the northernmost regions of the globe, an unforgiving biome where the average temperature is a chilly minus 12 to minus 6 degrees Celsius, and the short summer growing season is only 50 to 60 days long. But despite the seemingly inhospitable conditions, the Arctic tundra is home to many hardy species of plants, lichens, mosses, and fungi which are adapted to the conditions in their windy, snowy home. However, conditions around the world are changing, and the usually frigid Arctic winds are growing warmer each year at an unprecedented rate. Because it is so cold in Arctic ecosystems, temperature is one of the main factors that limits plant growth. This means that an increase in temperature in this ecosystem can have substantial and unpredictable effects on plant growth and reproduction. In a warmer Arctic, the snow will melt earlier in the year, the soil will be warmer, there will be more water available, and the permafrost layer will shrink. The permafrost layer is a layer of soil that lies below the surface and remains frozen all year round. With warmer temperatures, more of the topsoil will thaw, and the permafrost layer will be deeper than it was before. But what does this mean for the plants of the Great White North? Let's explore some of the ways that plant communities are responding to climate change in the Arctic through growth, reproductive strategies, and seed germination. Plants in the Arctic tundra are usually small and grow very close to the ground. Though they may live for many years, they will never attain the large mass or great height of plants at lower latitudes. This is because in order to survive and thrive, they must conserve heat as much as possible. If you've ever been to the beach on a cool, windy day, you know that standing upright might leave you shivering as the wind whisks away your body heat, but laying down on the sun-warmed sand and soaking up the rays is the fastest way to warm up. Plants do more or less the same thing. By growing slowly and staying low to the ground, they avoid the full force of the icy arctic wind and stay closer to the soil, which is warmer than the surrounding air. But what will happen as temperatures in the arctic increase? If you're on the beach on a hot day, you can stand up tall, play some beach volleyball and not worry about conserving heat. Arctic plants appear to react similarly to increased temperatures, minus the volleyball that is. A recent study comparing measures of plant growth in Arctic areas around the world found that plants in the Arctic tundra are taller on average than they used to be. Shrubs and grasses are also reaching higher maximum heights than they once did. During the same period of time, the average summer temperature increased by 0.72 degrees Celsius. However, not all plants increased in height equally. While some Arctic plants can survive in the tundra, but grow better in warmer conditions, Others are cold weather specialists and grow best in the frigid cold. In areas that were warmer to begin with, there was an increase in the number of tall shrubs and an increase in the height of shrubs, with deciduous shrubs showing the greatest increases in height. However, dwarf shrubs and evergreen shrubs, which are better adapted to cold, did not show any increases in abundance or in height. Also, in areas where shrubs and grasses increased, there was a decrease in mosses and lichens. This suggests that species that are already suited to a warmer temperature, such as tall deciduous shrubs and grasses, will become more abundant and more productive as the temperature increases. And species that are slow growing and low to the ground, like dwarf shrubs, lichens, and mosses, will not. 
Just like sunbathers crowding out the few joggers that can take advantage of cooler temperatures for their activities, the species that can take advantage of the warmer temperatures may start to take over the space of the species that can't. So how else does temperature affect plant communities in the Arctic? We have seen that increasing temperatures can change which growth strategy is the most effective. In bitter cold conditions, slow growth close to the ground is best, while in warmer conditions, plants that can grow faster and taller will thrive. This means that plants that are best suited to warm temperatures will benefit more from a temperature increase than those that are better suited to the bitter cold. Another way in which temperature affects plant communities is by limiting plants' reproductive potential, or how many offspring a plant can produce. The short Arctic growing season and low soil and air temperatures limit both the amount of energy that a plant can invest in reproduction and the amount of time that it has to get the job done. Many of the plants commonly found at lower latitudes, like grasses and shrubs, reproduce sexually by forming seeds. The hardiest cold-adaptive species, however, like lichens and mosses, can reproduce without producing seeds, which uses much less energy. In another study, researchers placed growing chambers around plots in the tundra and increased the temperature by 1 to 2 degrees Celsius to see how it would affect the plant's reproductive success, as well as the amount of energy that they invested in reproduction. They found that when plants were exposed to slightly milder conditions during the growing season, they used more energy for reproduction, and they reproduced more successfully. Usually, asexual reproduction is very important for Arctic species, as it is much more energetically efficient to produce vegetative buds or clones than it is to produce flowers and seeds. However, with warmer temperatures, plants that reproduce sexually can produce more offspring, allowing them to increase in number and spread to areas that used to be dominated by asexual and non-seed-producing mosses and lichens. If warmer temperatures favor the reproduction of shrubs and grasses, while not helping the reproduction of non-seed-producing species, the species composition of the ecosystem will change. Increased reproductive success would also increase plant cover in previously barren polar desert areas. This suggests that plants in a warmer Arctic would both grow taller and produce more seeds, establishing themselves in places that they never used to occupy before. Warmer temperatures in the Arctic will cause plants that thrive in warm climates to grow taller and produce more seeds. But what will happen to those extra seeds the plants are producing, and how will the new conditions affect the composition of Arctic plant communities? Though in general, grasses and shrubs are thought to become more prevalent in a warmer Arctic, the reaction of different species to temperature increases is not always easy to predict. Since each species has different characteristics to help it survive in the tundra, each will have a different reaction to changes in environmental conditions. Also, changes in temperature can have different effects on plants' growth and survival in different parts of its life cycle. One of the factors contributing to a plant's reproductive success is its rate of seed germination. Inside of a seed is an embryo in a dormant state and an energy source that the new seedling can use to grow until it can produce its own sugars with photosynthesis. Just like a pilot running a check before takeoff, the seed won't begin its transformation from a stored embryo to a new seedling until it is sure that all systems are in place. Not all seeds will germinate, 
and the ones that do rely on a specific set of environmental conditions, including temperature and water availability, to give them the signal to start. A study conducted in the Alaskan tundra showed that increased temperature increased seed germination of evergreen trees planted north of the natural tree line. Below a certain temperature threshold, germination rates are very low, but they increase when the temperature is increased experimentally. This suggests that temperature is an important factor determining the northern limits of the tree line by restricting germination. If temperatures continue to increase in the Arctic, trees could potentially start to establish further north than they currently do. Warm temperatures in the Arctic may increase the height and cover of plants, favor the growth of more temperate shrubs and grasses over that of lichens and mosses, improve reproductive success of seed-producing plants, and encourage the establishment of trees. So what are some of the possible effects of these changes in plant communities? As plant cover increases, there will be more food available for primary consumers, such as caribou, arctic hare, and lemming. This could change the population dynamics of arctic species, or support new species that previously couldn't have survived there. A longer growing season, allowing plants to cover more area and to attain greater sizes, could change the global carbon budget. Plants take in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis, and with more abundant plant life and a longer growing season, there could be more carbon uptake by plants in this area than there used to be. Sexual reproduction, such as that in seed-producing plants, combines genetic material from different individuals, creating more genetic diversity in the population. Therefore, improved seed production in the plants could lead to higher genetic variability in plant populations, which may help them to adapt to the changing environmental conditions that they face. Changes to the Arctic will have various effects on plant growth and reproduction, which may allow for different growth strategies, higher productivity, higher genetic diversity due to sexual reproduction, and establishment of new species. These changes in plant communities could have a worldwide impact through changes in photosynthesis and carbon storage. With such rapid change occurring, the Arctic tundra will be a priority for climatologists and plant ecologists alike. Thanks, Julianne. That was an eco-babble on Arctic plant ecology. Next up, Thasmia Nisha interviewed Janine Pedersen on her graduate research on rare plants and preserving biodiversity in the midst of climate change. Hello, hello. I'm here with Janine Peterson of University of Alberta's Renewable Resources Department. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she's a master's student, and she's here to discuss her lovely research. So would you like to explain what's up with assisted plant migrations? <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for having me first. And uh, pretty much my project deals with assisted migrations, which is the movement of a species from its current range to a range that we predict to be more suitable under uh, projected climate change scenarios. And yeah, the species in my project are the longleaf bluet and uh, the northern blazing star. And they're two rare species in Alberta. Did you pick these because they are rare species or was there another reason that you picked them? We did pick them because they're rare. Assisted migration is kind of a tool to prevent future extinctions or extirpations that may be caused by climate change. So we did choose them for this reason. 
So one, um, first off, we believe they're dispersal limited. Um, two, they have narrow uh, climatic niches and uh, uh, usually found in the Aspen Parkland natural subregion. That's why we think that. And then also, we believe they're highly habitat specific because um, you know they're they're usually found on uh, sand dunes actually. Being dispersal limited. These species might not be able to uh, migrate quick enough to keep pace with uh, the shifting climatic ranges that that will occur um, under future climate change projections. So this is a way in which we can help them out and we can move them and uh, yeah, uh, prevent their extirpations from the area. Can you explain the process of moving them? How do you go about doing that? <laughs> okay, so um, my experiment design is quite large. It's all over the province. And what we did is we found local populations of the northern blazing star and the longleaf bluets that were large enough. So removing certain plants from them wouldn't decimate the population. And then pretty much it's like gardening on a large scale. (laughs) We move them to sites across Alberta. So we put six sites in northern Alberta, which is in the boreal, to kind of test the success of these assisted migrations. Then we put some in its local range in the Aspen Parkland Natural Subregion. And then we also moved them to southern Alberta, set up plots down there to see if this uh, species has climate change vulnerabilities. We expect what is down in the south, like the conditions in the south, will eventually be what is here in the Aspen Parkland in maybe 50 years from now. Okay, so Aspen Parkland is like the, it's the, the s- desired climate 50 years from now for them. Yeah, yeah. So they, they so they live in that Aspen Parkland natural subregion range. It's a really narrow range, right in the center of Alberta. Right. Yeah, they <laughs> they might be really affected by the changing climate. So, okay. Yeah. So, has it been going successfully? Like, are they able to take root in the Aspen area? Yeah. Like, um, I really only have data for one of my species right now, okay. uh, the northern blazing star, and what we've found is they can grow north of their range. We actually moved them 500 kilometers up by Fort McMurray, and uh, they seem to be growing (laughs) and surviving. But the most interesting thing we have found is um, sea germination levels up there are much higher than they are in their current range. Um, So possibly showing us that maybe the species isn't even in equilibrium with its current conditions. Maybe it's already too hot here. Is there any complications with moving a plant to a new area? There's a big debate right now on whether to use assisted migrations or not. There's those who are for, who want to, you know, either prevent a species from going extinct, want to improve some sort of ecological function. But then there's people who are worried that, you know, we shouldn't move them. And if we move them, we may cause invasiveness and spread of disease. And I think if we have the right framework, and we take the right precautions in these assisted migrations, I think they could potentially be a tool to prevent future extinctions from climate change. All right, and what inspired you to do this as a research project? So I I actually, when I graduated from my undergrad here, I wasn't really able to find a job in environmental economics and policy, but we live in Alberta, so there's lots of reclamation work. <laughs> so when I started my reclamation work, what I really liked was doing uh, detailed site assessments, which are you go and assess the vegetation on a on a site once it's been reclaimed, and uh, I cut, like that was the best part of my job. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to do something with botany, 
And yeah, I just I got in touch with my supervisors, Scott Nielsen and Ellen McDonald, and they had this really cutting edge project. And you know, I've always been a fan of gardening and being outside, so it just seemed like a perfect fit. It, right now, my research is pretty new. <laughs> like my, I don't have too many results. And actually, to prove a system migration to be 100% successful, you would need, you know, 10 to 20 years of data. But yeah, I think the most surprising thing was probably the germination rates. I kind of thought they would be maybe not as high in the north since, you know, this is where they grow in the Aspen Parkland Natural Region. They should just, you know, grow there (laughs) to a certain height. But uh, yeah, that was really interesting to see. And the sites down south, like their germination levels were really, really poor, even lower than their current range. So that does show us that the species maybe has some sort of climate change vulnerability. What are the greatest challenges right now for continuing your research? That's a good question. I've never been asked that before. <laughs> Probably the biggest challenges are, one, receiving the funding to to carry out uh, continued experiments. And, you know, in order for them to be successful, we need to have these experiments so we know which methods are appropriate. And without this research, might be really hard for <laughs> this to be a tool that is used in the future and like a tool that is successful in the future. All right. And do you want to add anything else? You know, I'm working with ABMI, so Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute. And, um, you know, we're all about preserving biodiversity um, in Alberta. And, and I think, you know, this could be a potential tool to help maintain biodiversity here. That was Thusmia Nishoff, sitting down with Janine Pedersen to discuss her research on rare plants. Our final story is an interview with the creators of plant info cards for the Pacific Northwest Coastal Region. Annie Banks talked to the card creators, John Bradley Williams and Jennifer McMullen. Hello, my name is John Bradley Williams. I work with Feasting for Change. I'm Kusanich and Housit First Nations. I've been with Feasting for Change for the last four years now, and I work with them doing plant guides in the ovens. Uh, hello, my name is Jen McMullen. I've been working with the Feasting for Change project since 2008 when uh, people came together out of inspiration to um, enhance food sovereignty within First Nations communities. So Facing for Change is a group of people who have come together who are interested in promoting traditional foods within First Nations communities on southern Vancouver Island. Uh, how we've been doing this is do, working with communities to organize pick cooks, plant walks, and, and other workshops that um, highlight knowledge keepers within that community and hold them up so they can share their knowledge to other people in their community and to the First Nations communities that are that are in the area. The plant garden tours that I give, uh, we bring the groups out into nature and show them um, various plant species that they can use, like whatever's in season, the various species that they can eat, like the edible ones such as uh, the salmon berries, the mulberry, salal and the trailing blackberry. And then for the poisonous ones, uh, the snowberry. There's 65 cards in the deck, and each one highlights a different um, 
plant that is either used as food or medicine. And, and the cards are partially to help people identify and then how to use them. So the beginning, the front part of the card has a picture of the plant. And when you flip the card over, it has another smaller picture of a different part of the plant or the plant in a different season. And, and then the, the name of the plant in English, Latin, and, and Sinchasin, Dididat, and Halkaminam, which are three spoken languages in that area. There is a fourth language, the Kwangin, but it isn't spoken with by very many people. It's a lost language. And, and these three languages highlight, it highlights that languages can be lost, so that we need to, re, we need to use them and learn them. And that's one, one purpose of these cards. Then the, the plant is described, and, and then the last part of the card has how you can use them. I was inspired to, to do this but because I've been reading plant identification books, and so many of them say this plant can be used medicinally. But it doesn't say how. It doesn't say what part. It doesn't say what the plant actually does. And so John Bradley Williams and I came together and, and wrote these cards together. And he provided much of the information that went on the cards, or together we found elders within the community. The plant cards uh, have a lot to do with, with indigenous foods that, that I've learned about in the last six years of, of um, my training in, in ethnobotany. And I think it's just uh, really important to, to share about, about these plants, especially the ones that are that are endangered so that, that we can help those plants uh, and their ecosystems that they belong to, like the, like the edible camas and the chocolate lily as two examples, um, because the, the camas is actually their traditional starch source before the potato was in, introduced to the Saanich people. And then as for the chocolate lily, that was our rice equivalent prior to rice being introduced, although it grows a little bit differently than rice. It doesn't grow in the wetlands like what rice does. It grows in actually meadows, and it's uh, quite an endangered lily, and so is its ecosystem. And with these cards, and the my hope is that, that there's going to be more knowledge out there of these plants and then have that knowledge transfer to our protection as well as revitalizing those, those ecosystems so that, that they, they can support people again. Vancouver, Southern Vancouver Island is a highly developed area. And, and so many of the plants, have, for example, soapberry, have been almost wiped out because of development and because of uh, non-First Nations people's ignorance about why those plants are important or that they're uh, in use, that people are going out and actively looking for them. So that's, that's one major, major reason. And I think that there's a second, more subtle reason why they're being endangered. It's because people are forgetting how to use those. They don't remember that knowledge because of residential school and, and other issues within the community. 
people are forgetting. And so these cards are hoping to revitalize that knowledge and uh, gain people's interest to actually use those plants again. The, the cards aren't meant to be how-tos. Um, they're actually meant, they're meant to kind of have a trigger effect to get people more curious about the other species that aren't listed in these cards and talk to their local elders. We are selling these cards at the moment um, as a fundraiser for the Sandwich Adult Education Center, which has um, a program called the Sinchothan Apprentices, which promotes language and traditional knowledge to revitalize the language. And right now we're selling them online over Etsy, and, and then they will be sold from the Sandwich Adult Education Center, and they're $30 a deck. Thanks, Annie. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. You can email us at terra at cgsr.com and find us on Twitter at Terra Informa. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Julianne Hayes, Annie Banks, Shelley Jodowin, Ashley Coaches, Thusmi Nishoff, and Amanda Rooney. Catch you next week.